right, welcome to the Teaching That Counts podcast. As always, I'm Abel Maestas. I'm an instructional coach here at Ceres Unified School District. And today we are on our third um, discussion session about the book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics by Peter Lilladal. Today, I've got a wonderful group of teachers here with me to talk over chapters four and chapter five. Um, we're specifically, we're looking at how we arrange furniture in a thinking classroom and how we answer questions in a thinking classroom. So I'm, I'm pretty excited here to be with, uh, with these four teachers, so I'll let them introduce themselves. So sitting right next to me. Hello, my name is Elvis Delgado. I teach Integrated Math 1 and Computer Science. Hi, I'm Sarah Mucha, and I teach Accelerated Math 2. Hi, I'm Grant McCormick, and I teach Math 1 at Central Valley. Hi, I'm Tucker Schorberg. I teach Math 3 and AP Calculus at Sirius High School. Perfect. Thank you guys for joining me today. And, um, well, let's just dive right in and talk about Chapter 4. Um, as we were getting set up here, I know that Tucker had mentioned about just, like, like the, the first gut feelings you had when you read this chapter on the furniture. I, I don't know why Chapter 4 just exhibited the most internal pushback out of all the chapters I have read. It was just moving furniture and just changing up the furniture in the room. And out of everything, all the biggest paradigms, just objectively, it seems like the least intrusive. However, I just it just evoked the strongest reaction. I don't know why. Yeah, it reminds me of when I was, wanted to change my room all the time, like the furniture in my room. But... You know, he. I think he mentioned this in the in the beginning about how teachers didn't like taking all the furniture out of their classroom. So that that's an interesting, interesting thing to say. I'd like to add to that. Uh, when I first read the chapter, I kind of gave me some anxiety because I'm about symmetric. You know, like things need to be in order. If they're not in order, I feel like I'm out of place. So it's like, wait a minute, I had to be messy with this order. So I had a, a little pushback too on it. I agree. I just think as math people, we're kind of, you know, we we like things to have order. We like things to have structure. And so um, it was hard to read. But I do want to try it to see um, how it would work. I started thinking, like, well, where could I move my desk? Or is that even going to work for my classroom? Like, just where logistical things are set up. Um, but it was interesting how it said, you know, if your classroom is, like, orderly and, and super organized, like, it's a negative effect almost on students because they don't want to take a risk because they're afraid of making a mistake. Like, it's almost like your your room does need to be, like, organized chaos, so that way that students feel safe to take those risks. I kind of also, I was really, it really bugged me that I had this anxiety and thinking about why, and I was thinking my seating chart and students being in their desk is my the main start of classroom procedures and classroom management and as teachers that's the first thing that you need to get down um, in order to help instruction move smoothly and then I just started thinking about classroom management through instructional design and, and maybe you know this paradigm switch of a thinking classroom and students engaging and thinking that maybe that's the classroom management you need and so furniture and, and those, you know, procedures you're really used to, maybe that, you know, can be more lax. Like the, 
instructional design and the pedagogy is driving the management, not the furniture <laughs> itself driving the management or the structure, um, which it, it kind of almost it's it's I don't want to say it goes against what we learned when we were in in I don't know teacher school right when we were working on our credential, um, but it definitely is makes us think about that. Uh, it, you know the whole part in this chapter when he showed just the picture of the classroom to the students and they already made assumptions of what the teacher was like just by looking at the picture and the structure of the classroom that that was fascinating and I am I kind of highlighted that and thought I wonder if I ask students this question right now what they would say and and I thought maybe that's a good thought experiment to go out to the high schools and say hey uh, what do you guys here's some pictures what do you think yeah because I mean I don't do a ton of different seating arrangements but there's a difference between how I arrange my seats for a test and the students come in and oh they suddenly remember they have a test and they know that from the seating arrangement and so I think it's there's that quote in there about uh, the way the desks were placed meant that the teacher was never going back to the teaching the way she used to. I think it's really about sending the message. We can have all these pedagogical shifts but if the students um, have been doing things otherwise with the current arrangement they're still going to have some of the bad habits that we still like to get out of them. Oh, Very true. Back to chapter three, uh, in which we talked about students having a different arrangement every day. That's which I've been applying. So, like on top of that, now the seats have to be chaos. But then to kind of like learn more, create that thinking classroom that we've been reading about. Um, I don't know. It just didn't fit right with me, especially too when you see these nice organized classroom where you think the students would come in and say, "Hey, this is a place where I can think." Uh, and it's going to be clean thinking and processing, not a messy form. Uh, but that's what they want. They want a messy form of thinking because the classroom is messy. Um, and then I looked at the pictures too, and I don't know if my classroom or maybe the classrooms that we have will ever even fit that scenario because I feel like creating groups and trying to expand into the tables, it kind of creates more, there's less space to sometimes even walk so myself in my classroom, the way I even have things, I'm really having a hard time just navigating and circling and helping students now. And all of a sudden, I was casting more spread out, groups. Um, so I don't know how comfortable I still feel about that. Yeah, going back to the previous chapters about the vertical whiteboards, it's almost like it doesn't really matter how your desks are situated because you're really not going to be in those desks. So, but I do agree that, well, even just having furniture that had wheels would make it so much easier. Like, when I go from my groups that I have to the seating for a test, it's a pain in the butt to rearrange the desk. And if I forget, oh, I forgot to tell fifth period to move the desk back, like today, I was in my classroom moving desks. So, um, but I think the whole point is, what are we actually using the desks for? Like, are we just using it to take attendance? And then we're doing those vertical whiteboards? But I do, I have the same issue of like, how do I, how, how do I move all the desks to the center and still have room for all these groups along the perimeter and for me to walk around? Like I'm constantly like trying to find new ways to make it easier. Yeah, we definitely come into some troubles when we have a class size of 35, 30, 35, and our space is limited. Um, 
one of the things he mentions in the book is about decentering de or defronting the classroom, right? Defronting. I think he even mentions try to when he first tried this. I think it might have been the FAQs when he first tried to stay as much to the center of the room as possible to let the students kind of to be for. Oh, this is in, that's in the next chapter, chapter six, when we talk about questions. So. My my wonder, just like you said, Sarah, is can you still have a seating chart or seating arrangement to have the students in them to get them going? And then once they're in task mode, it's like, boom, they're out on the edges of the classroom. And, um, and that's where they are. But I think there needs to be some rearrangement. It's, it's also tricky. I was talking to, I think it was an ed tech I was talking to today. And it's tricky when your um, class has the technology in one area. So your phone is in one area and the internet, like you only have one spot to put your computer. And so it's difficult to like try to come up with this creative rearrangement when you're kind of forced into some of that, that situation. So um, I think you were mentioning a little bit earlier, I think when, when we were setting up about our learning intentions and success criteria, it's like, well, we need to use board space for that. So now that I'm using up board space, where are the students going to work? Um, and he mentions in the book, too, if you're going to have the projector, have the projector on when you're using it, but not have it on when you're not using it. So it's not as easy as just like, oh, I'm going to put the projector, and I'm going to put my learning intentions and success criteria up there. And I know a lot of you in, in the rooms that you have, well, except Elvis. Elvis has like a special TV. He's got TVs all over the place. Um, but you have a projector and a screen that covers part of your whiteboards. And so you can't be utilizing the whiteboard if you have that projector down. So yeah, I, you'd mentioned the projector. Um, I, a colleague of ours um, had his projector moved off the front of his wall to a non-whiteboard wall. And custodial staff was, was happy to do that. Um, so they did that for him. That was one thought that I had. Another thought that I had was maybe still keep my, my desk Groups, but just face all the, the directions a different way. Um, and then to furthermore defront it, moving moving my desk. And I thought about the phone and I thought about the technology. I was like, okay, what do I really need, you know, for my desk? And really it's it's just for the desktop PC. I mean the phone could be on the wall, you know, wherever in the room. Um, but just trying to take some of these ideas and I, I think just how like thinking is supposed to be messy, maybe this whole process is supposed to be messy, you know, try something, if it doesn't work, you know, scrap it. Um, I think kind of the, the big idea, right, is shocking the system where students change up their, you know, kind of uh, habits that they've, they've learned. Yeah, I thought about putting my desk in the center of the room, um, but not have like the technology piece there. I don't know, when, when I think about the technology pieces, like we were so far ahead, like, oh, students, Chromebooks, one-to-one, -one, and now it's like, no, we're going to be on whiteboards. So it's like, I feel like we're almost going backwards. <laughs> Not backwards, but like we're saying we don't necessarily, yes, we have the technology and it's great, but let's go back to like what actually, like, you know, don't reinvent the wheel type thing. Um, I I think moving the, the projector would be an interesting thing. I wonder if the uh, custodial staff at our site would do that. That would be um I also have just like, I have a storage room in my classroom and it's like, I should just put my filing cabinet inside the storage room or like, you know, move things into the storage room to like create more space. Um, 
And the defronting piece with like adding things, like adding a clock on every wall, like I didn't think about that. But then also students would need to know how to read an analog clock. So like maybe that's like a lesson in itself. Um, so those were just some of the things that I was toying with. To add, um, I remember when I first got into my classroom and there was just desks and they were pointing towards the white screen. And I was like, this is awesome. I'm finding a teacher. And then finally get going, right? But it wasn't ideal for me because each desk was separated. Students were sitting next to each other. So the next week I worked, uh, I came in and I put teachers together. I grouped them by two. And I was like, you know what? I still want students to be in groups bigger. So I ended up doing groups of four. And following year, I actually ended up getting tables. I was like, awesome. I no longer need these desks, but I got these tables where students can collaborate and talk. Push it forward three years later, I get this nice big TV, 85 inch TV, which is like now I have a projector and a TV. What do I do with the projector? And then actually moving that projector to the other side of the classroom while the TV was the front, uh, front to face. And students were looking at the TV, but I was looking at the projector, so then it allowed me to see what I'm writing on the screen while also looking at students, making sure they're paying attention. That's the way I took it. And eventually said, you know, the projector's not for me. It should also be for students to look at. So I ended up moving the TV and projector on where they were adjacent to each other. And that kind of helped a lot more students because they were a lot closer to TV or they were a lot closer to the screen. They were able to see and follow directions or at least write down some notes. I'm like, well, at least I can't see because I'm way too behind or I'm behind in the class. Or... I need glasses, and maybe I had like five kids who were already in the front. So that really kind of like changed things up. And now that I'm in this idea of how do I create this classroom where I can use the projector and TV, it has really come into this limbo. Like, how am I going to be able to adjust my classroom to go help me, my students, be a little bit chaotic and still have that walking space so students can see everything? So it's still a lot of work, so, but it's getting there. All right, so there's so clearly there's some stuff to think about with uh, rearranging your rooms. Um, I think you gave the listeners, though, a lot to think about in terms of some of the strategies that we could use to um, defront our classroom and, um, and think about especially how we can get, the, how we can get around our classrooms um, to be able to hit all the groups when they're in groups, and they're up doing the test. So let's move on to chapter five, and chapter five will take a kind of a shift from um, the way our classroom's set up to how we answer questions in a thinking classroom. And I, you know, at first, I, as I was reading this, and he brings up these three types of questions that students ask, the proximity questions, the stop thinking questions, and the th keep thinking questions. And as I reflect back to the types of questions students ask, they're almost always the stop thinking questions. They're almost always like, did I get this right? Or I just want to not do this anymore. Um, just give me, an, give me a reason to stop. So I find it, it's going to be difficult to find a way to get them to continue. Um, what types of things while you guys were reading this really stood out in terms of those three types of questions that students ask and how you can answer those? Yeah, I think ultimately the way that, that we answer the questions is what we, we give the question an energy in how we answer it or, or don't answer it, and as the book says we could potentially be doing. 
see that as their outs and they keep asking those questions. And so by not energizing those um, and having other ways of get, uh, reactivating them in the learning process by, um, I, re I really like those um, 10 questions that they have showed up on page 89 and 90. Um, are you asking me or are you telling me? And answering questions with questions. Um, I think that's really interesting because it, it continues the thinking. They, they're used to having questions go in a way that would, um, they're, they're used to having questions uh, continue their thinking. And so by answering with a statement, of course they're going to stop thinking. Mm. Yeah, I really liked this chapter, um, the keep thinking questions. I mean, that's always been my goal is to keep students thinking or just to find their answer on their own. So I've always been a big proponent of answer the question with a question or answer the question with what their metacognition should be. Like, you know, what checks do I need to do? Okay, I do this, then this informs me this. Um, and just reading this chapter today, I was like, okay, I'm not going to answer their questions. I'm going to <laughs> answer their question with a question. And it felt so good when a student answered her own question without me answering their question. I just kept posing questions, going backwards through the scaffolding process of what they should know, which leads to this, which leads to this. And it was such a great feeling. And then I ran into the situation where they're like, sometimes these are really going to test you. Like some students oh, yeah. are just going to keep asking questions where it's going to be extremely painful for you. And I just, I, I found myself at the point where I was just like, I'm going to smile and I'm going to walk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, that, was, that was really great. So I love the smiling and walking away technique that you talked about in there. Um, I, I, you know what really, once they get used to this, I remember students asking a question and then sitting there and then asking another question and then sitting there and thinking and they go, oh, oh, no, okay. I, then they, they get, and I didn't do anything. I just walked by and like looked at them and just my presence helped them think through whatever they were doing. And I think that's what we strive for is, is just for them to, to really get to that point where they're really thinking through things and scaffolding in their own minds to get, to get the answer that they're looking for. As I was reading this, um, I was like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, next day at work, I'm just going to see, like, if I notice any of this. And it was like one kid would raise their hand and or I would be circulating in the room, and I felt like I got so many proximity questions, and I was like, oh, my God, what has what is happening? Like, it was it was weird. Um, and also, like, the, the fact that it says um, that teachers answer or they get 200 to 400 questions in a day, I'm like, no wonder when I get home I'm, like, brain fried or I don't want to answer anyone's questions or answer my phone because my brain has been working so hard. Um, yeah, I, I do like the prompts here. I... I do feel like I don't have a great poker face when it comes to students like asking me questions and I want to give them the answer. So then like I like the smile and walk away aspect, but then I'll start hearing kids be like, well, she raised her right eyebrow. So like, I think that we're on the right track or like, <laughs> I think she did this. So like, and last time she kind of laughed. So maybe like that wasn't the right thing. And like playing into my, um, you know, facial expressions or how I tried to not answer them. 
Um, so I'm interested tomorrow when I do vertical whiteboards and I'm seeing what they know and just smiling and walking away how they receive it. But I do see how that could be irritating for some students. So I did like, um, I think towards the end they talked about, you know, not telling kids up front why you're doing that. Like do it for a couple weeks and then tell them why. Um, because if you tell them up front, it's almost like you're asking for permission. And um, I, I thought that that was insightful. Like a lot of these things I do, I'm reading this book and I want to tell my students like, hey, so I read that like I'm supposed to defront the classroom. What do you think about that? Or, you know, they were talking about a, a teacher at our site that has the clock covered up. And so I was thinking like, oh, would that be considered like defronting your classroom too? Like instead of adding more clocks, like removing the clock, is that a way to defront the classroom? Um, or like put more projectors and some, I don't know. Like it, it was just an interesting take how they were, they were even talking about the, the um, clock. It did have me thankful though that I, I, I teach high school students because reading the, the section on about a six-year-old asking a question, you know, they will just keep asking you that question over and over and over again, uh, again you know, having a, a five-year-old of my own. And just that, that visual of them following the teacher around like little ducklings just was pure comedy on page, pages 90 and 91. So I, I teach math one and computer science. And when I was reading this chapter, that really kind of separate my two my two courses as a completely different atmospheres. Um, and math, I'm always getting these questions asked, like, why do we do this? Why is the process? Where do I sit? Like, all these random questions. Why computer science, student asks a question, and all I have to do is look at the rubric. And it just answers the question, and I can easily move forward without having to, like, really do any thinking myself. And they say, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. I was like, how come I haven't done this in math yet? <laughs> so I'm going crazy because I need a rubric where students can just look at something like, that's what I need to do. But it often needs to be an easier process where students can say, I don't get this. Where can I go and kind of understand this concept? Uh, I'll give you an example for computer science where students need to create a function that allows them to move their variable up and down, which we call it a sprite. And if they don't know how to do that, they can easily refer back to a previous lesson that they have coded and like, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I do it, and they go back and do it. While in math, it's like, okay, I don't know how to do this. Where do I go back and get that support right away instead of asking teachers? So I'm trying to figure out is there a way where students can just go in, get the answer they need, now they can apply for computer science. And this chapter uh, caused me to think of like when I'm giving a test, how many kids will want to ask me questions, see if they're on the right track during a test, and they're asking for that for the validation uh, because that's what I give them in ordinary lessons. That's what uh, I use to get them to hopefully keep thinking at times. Um, and they're, they're really wanting, the book mentions that they really want to have their questions heard, um, not necessarily answered. And I feel like I'm always trying to answer the questions, but really what I need to be doing is focusing on how do I make sure that the questions feel like their questions have been heard. Um, and there are times where I should answer that, but then there's those times where, you know, the smile and walk away is really the way to go. And getting them to have that discourse with their groups, um, it says towards the end of this chapter, that like, well, did you ask your group? What did your group say to this question? Um, I think that just really taking the burden off of us is really the, the key forward to getting a, that thinking classroom, because otherwise it's the teacher doing all the thinking. 
So just really quick, um, so our listeners can, can understand um, our verbiage here. So proximity questions are questions that students just ask because the teacher is close, right? They're really close to them, so they're going to ask them questions. Is this right? Or what do you think of this? And they wouldn't go out to ask you the question. Um, a stop thinking question is usually like, is this right? Or why do we have to learn this? Or things that would allow them to really just stop their thinking and just move on. And keep thinking questions are really questions that allow students to move on with their thinking and go to kind of the next level and to kind of continue working through the task. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about those three types of questions. To go back to um, Elvis's point, I, I think it'll be interesting once we get to the chapter on notes where how students can go back and refer to those notes to be a place where they can go and and go back to say, oh, okay, now I remember how to do this. And also in this district working on proficiency scales, that might also help as a rubric level so they can go back and go, oh, this is what I have to be able to do. So maybe those proficiency scales can work in that case too. So I'm, I'm excited to get those out to you guys at some point soon. Um, any other thoughts on this chapter before we wrap up today? I just wanted to add, Sarah was mentioning earlier um, that section about um, discussing what you're doing with the students and communicating why you're doing that. And I feel like that's um, also been a theme that's come back um, in selecting the random grouping because the kids thought that were thinking uh, that I was rigging the deck and I was purposely putting students together because um, I was passing out the cards to them initially. But then once I let them pick, the, pick their own cards and they realized that there was no trick to it, um, I think that, that that idea of, hey, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm, um, I'm doing this because the research says that this is the best way to get you to do what you need to do. Um, I like that idea. That just seems like it's been a theme throughout the book. That um, if, I mean, imagine that we're more clear with our students in what we're doing. Success criteria and, and providing clarity, I think that goes with these practices as well. Yeah, I don't think that this needs to be uh, a secret. Um, we can talk to the students about what the research says and and even check in with them on how they're feeling about it. Yeah, and one apprehension I did have on this um, chapter was the idea and interaction with parents. I've just heard stories or you hear students say, this teacher never answers my questions. They won't answer my questions. And and I, I know always to take those, you know, with a caveat or a grain of salt or you know, that, you know, really was playing telephone. Um, so one of the, the frequently asked questions was how do parents react to the teacher not answering questions? And I, I think, you know, that's sometimes it's just going to require a conversation or eventually maybe an explanation, uh, you know, back to school night or, or something, just communicating them to them, you know, that you do answer questions, but, you know, you're, um, you're, you're really trying to build answering questions, um, we're taking away their thinking. And I think Abel and I had talked about this. Like, you know, you teach something first period and you're like, oh, well, they they didn't know how to do X, Y, and Z. So let me front load second period with X, Y, and Z so I don't have to answer those questions. But when we're doing that, we're taking away their thinking. And so I thought that, that was like a really powerful conversation because it's like I, I don't want to take away their thinking and 
I want them to struggle through it because they are going to remember that experience and it's going to stick with them a little bit more. All right. Well, it was great to sit with uh, the four of you and talk through chapters four and five in building thinking classrooms, looking at the seating arrangements and how we arrange our classroom and also the types of questions that we answer for kids. I'm pretty excited about our next, um, next time we meet. We're looking at the next couple of chapters. So... Um, join us next time when we talk about chapters six and seven in building thinking classrooms. And thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody. See you next time.